This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Today's episode of Working is brought to you by Slack. Slack brings all of your communication at work into one place. Create a new team right now at slack.com slash slate, and you'll get $100 in credit for when you decide to upgrade to a paid plan. That's slack.com slash slate. And by Carbonite. Keep your digital files safe this year. Protect your photos, music, and documents with automatic cloud backup from Carbonite. Try it free without a credit card at carbonite.com and use the offer code WORKING to get two free bonus months if you decide to buy. Welcome to Working, Slate's podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan, and I write about technology and culture for Slate. I've always loved used bookstores, but I've never really known what went on in them, how they chose what to buy and how to price the books that they sold. So for this episode of Working, we visited Second Story Books in Washington, D.C. to talk to my friend Topher Lundell, a bookseller who keeps the shop running. He told us about how they acquired the thousands of books that lined the store's shelves and discussed how the internet changes its brick-and-mortar business model. He also led us through the store itself, showing off some of its rarer treasures. And in a Slate Plus Extra, Topher tells us about some of the gloriously weird books that make their way into the store. Most of all, its collection of sci-fi pulp novels that probably seem even stranger now than they did when they were first published decades ago. Can you tell us who you are and what you do? My name is Topher Lundell, and I am a bookseller and book buyer at Second Story Books in Washington, D.C. So what does that entail? Well, um, there's a lot of different things that go into it. Uh, basically, we are a used bookstore. We also sell rare books, uh, and we have a little bit of a side business with CDs and DVDs. We're in the bookstore right now. Can you tell us a little bit about this space? Uh, well, we've been here since about 1979. The most of the floor is taken over by, as you can see, 
used books that we buy mostly from people coming in off the street or estate sales. And then we also have, if you look around, uh, different cases, which have some of our more rare and expensive items. How many books in total do you think you have here in the store? Ooh, that's a hard one to gauge. I would say it is 10,000. Don't hold me to that. Um, Overall, we have, between this store and our other store, about half a million books. So a lot of what you do is figuring out how to add to that collection, how to bring more books into the store. Exactly. Well, the way we do it is we have a large warehouse in Rockville, Maryland, where people will come if they have a large collection of books, um, or we have a book buyer who goes out on buys for people who are moving, uh, somebody who's died, um, and he'll bring them to our warehouse where they get sorted. um, And the best store stock comes to this location. So when you are doing those initial buys, it's just huge bulk. We tend to, if it's a large collection, we tend to take everything. um, And then we sort out what we want to keep for us, what we want to put outside on our outdoor sales, which are, you know, $2, $4 books. um, And then what is sort of going to be our more expensive items, our first edition, signed copies and things like that. You spend a lot of time sorting through those large collections then? By the time they get here, they've largely been sorted through. What we do here is we'll get a delivery every day, and in that delivery, we'll get you know a few high-end items, which means that I'll spend a good part of my day, if they haven't been priced, figuring out how much they're actually worth, and then how much we can sell them for, and then we catalog them, which means that we give sort of a description of the contents and the condition of the book. Why do you have to catalog them? Uh, to sell online. Um, a lot of our more expensive books won't sell in the store. They will sell online. The impression is often that Amazon has killed independent bookstores, but in practice, it's played a large role, I think, in used bookshops like this one. That's really true because we uh, we actually do sell on Amazon. Um, and as far as Amazon killing independent bookstores, it seems like now they're killing the larger chain bookstores. Um, the advantage that we have is that we have a small store that's very well curated, and we have people who work here who know books. Almost anything you get on our shelves you can find on Amazon, but you can't browse in the same way. You don't have the same people recommending things, and that, I think, is the big difference for what's going on now. Do existing entries for books on Amazon inform the kind of thinking that you do here about pricing and even selection? They do. Um, We will use Amazon as well as other websites like ABE Books, who specializes in, in, in uh, used bookstores and out-of-print books. We'll use both of those to sort of gauge where we want to price a book. And there's a difference between pricing something for online and in the store. Sort of walking a line between, is this book going to sell in the store or are we trying to sell it online? Most of the books in the store we don't sell online. It's only the, the rare and expensive things. Do you use algorithms to settle on pricing? I know that some booksellers do that, or, or is it all kind of done by hand? On Amazon, we do. Um, Amazon is sort of a separate business for us. Our Amazon books aren't on the shelves. They stay at our warehouse. And what we do is we try to find a good price for them, and then we have what's known as a repricer that will slowly lower the price to match other vendors that have a similar quality rating to us and also the condition of the book. So you sort of are trying to match those things together, and that will sort of settle into a nice price. And hopefully not take it all the way down to one penny. Exactly. We are not... There are bookstores who have a model where they will put everything online 
And if it goes down to a penny, it goes down to a penny. And then they make their money off of the shipping. There's like a very small uh, amount that they can make off of shipping. We don't do that. We try to never go below $10 on Amazon. It's just we're not a huge operation that can afford to go down to penny book sales. When you're thinking about pricing in the store, what informs your decision of how much a book should cost? For regular uh, store stock, which are the books that are on the shelves that you know we're trying to sell as fast as possible to get new stuff in, um, we have a really simple, uh, it's half off for a uh, paperback, half off the cover price. Um, and then hardcovers, we would tend to start with half off for a book that was published this year, and then it slowly lowers from there. So our hardcovers tend to sell from 12 to $14. And then, of course, things that are a little bit more rare, we sort of have to do research on that. And that's where online resources really come in handy. How do you decide how much to offer relative to how much you're going to sell a book? Here in the store, if somebody brings in a few books that are going to go on our shelves that are just regular paperbacks or hardcovers, we tend to offer store credit for those. If we offer cash, it's a little bit less than that. So the percentage is a little smaller. We don't really have a set percentage because it all depends on what the book is. What do you pay for like a really expensive book, like a rare first edition of uh, Dickens? That's a little bit more of a negotiating process between us and the customer. Um, And a lot of times we will consign a book like that. So they will bring it in. Um, If it's worth a certain amount of money, the owner of the store will offer to sell the book on consignment, which means that when the book sells, we each get a portion of the profit from that. Uh, but generally, when you're just buying regular old books, it's more about the whole package of what they're delivering and, and how you think you're going to move it. Exactly. If I think um, if it's a book that I think I'm going to sell fast, I tend to offer a little bit more. If it's a book that I have a little bit doubt if it's going to sit on our shelves and then wind up on the street, I will offer a little bit less. What kind of books are the ones that, that you expect to turn around quickly? Well, that's part of uh, having some experience in the store where that really helps. For example, I don't know that much about military history, but military history is a great seller here. Fiction always sells well, and philosophy always sells well here. And then you just have to sort of be informed, you know, what the hot books are now. If, you know, a book by Elena Ferrante comes in, I'll buy it immediately and it will sell within the hour. It's just a part of being experienced in in the book selling business. You're an extremely voracious reader. What do you look for? What do you what excites you when you when you find something as you're as you're searching through books? Well, for me, my thing has always been I, I'm a big reader of fiction, and that's where I, what I love. And so it's always exciting for me when we get something that's a rare first edition of a fiction book. Um, but what I really like it, working here are sort of the surprises that come in. The other week we had a book that was signed by Einstein. Um, and that sort of just came in off the street, no planning at all. And so things like that are really where the exciting parts of the day are. When you find something like that signed copy of Einstein, do you find that just by sort of flipping through the book or does the person who comes in off the street usually identify it for you? Sometimes you will find that you notice something that the seller didn't notice. This case, they knew what they had. They just didn't know what it was worth. And when they found out, they were really surprised. (laughs) How do you interact with someone when they come in to sell something? Well, we do this every day until four o'clock. So we have people coming in off the street and it's a really wide range of people. Uh, some of the unfortunate things are we get a lot of people who come in who just don't want their books to get thrown out. 
And it's hard for us to turn those people away, even though we do have such a limited space. So we have a lot of people who are selling us books and we have to turn them down and they're telling us, well, no, this is a really good book. And we understand. Luckily, there's a lot of charities that we try to redirect people to. Is there anything that you've had to turn away that was especially painful to you? All the time. Um, it's, it's, it can be a little bit heartbreaking seeing somebody who thinks that they have something that, because it's old, is going to be worth a lot of money. And I know that some of that is tied up into their own emotional connections to it. And so when you tell them that, oh, well, this book doesn't really have much monetary value, and you try to say it in a way where you're not saying that this book is worthless, because to the person who's selling it to you, it's not. Used books do tend to come with a certain history, uh, a certain weight. Do you feel that weight? Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, some of the more interesting things are when we pull up a collection of books and we go through them and we can find letters from people, gift inscriptions and that kind of thing. And so that's always fun to see. What do you do with that kind of stuff? Just leave it in the book uh, for other people to find? We have a small collection of things and we've been sort of adding to that. One of the unfortunate things is we get so much of that that a lot of it just gets tossed. Can we just talk about just the sort of general shape of the day? Definitely. What time do you arrive at the bookstore? Um, I get in every day at nine. The first hour of the day, I am checking the store just to see if we have any gaps that need to get filled, a section that looks empty, and I'll send up a request to the warehouse who sends down the delivery, and I'll say we need to get more in Civil War, philosophy, uh, things like that. I usually touch base with the owner, and he tells us what is going to come down, how many boxes we're getting on the daily delivery. Um, I also fulfill our internet orders. And then at 10, we open, which usually means for me, if it's a nice day out, I will bring out our sale carts, which are sort of like what they do at the Strand, $2, $4 carts of books, which comprise a good amount of our sales for the day. Um, and then the rest of the day is basically cataloging books, selling books, and buying books from the people who come in. When you're interacting with people who just come in looking for a book, what's that process like? Well, it's interesting. Everybody thinks that all books are now on computers. So everybody asks us, oh, can I have a look at your catalog? And we really don't have a catalog for anything except for books that we sell for basically over $100. I read deeply, but I don't know everything. And some people assume that they're interested in a book on the Civil War, so they'll mention an author and assume that you know who that is. And that's often not the case. So you sort of have to coax them to say, where is the book? And you show them the shelf where it would be and suggest alternatives when the book isn't there. Can you tell us a little bit about your sort of typical customer here? Do you have a typical customer? There's not really a typical customer, but I would say that we have a lot of customers who are here every day. A lot of that is because we have a high book turnover and we do get new things every day. There are a lot of people who are very obsessive about shopping for books and have to come in and buy something at least once a day. We have some people who come in two or three times a day. Do those people who come in a lot also sell a lot? They don't actually. And sometimes I wonder where all these books are going, um, especially with our sales carts. We have people who will buy five to 10 books every day. And those are going somewhere, but they tend not to come back here. <laughs> so what kind of book does end up on those sale carts? The sales carts are either books that are a little bit too damaged for us to sell in the store. They might have some highlighting or underlining covers are torn. Um, and then there's a lot of books 
that are you know typically 20 years old on subjects that there's been changes in the world in an investment book from 1999 would be out there because there have been changes since then in the investment world does that stuff still sell you'd be surprised yes books like that sell we do get a lot of uh occasionally we'll get a decorator who comes in who are is just buying books to put in the background of a shot or to put in the background when they're selling a house and they will buy you know 20 to 30 books at a, at a, at a stretch if someone wanted to delve deep into their own love of reading and wanted to become a bookseller themselves do you have any advice for them um i would say go to your local used or independent bookstore a lot of places are hiring all the time it's not a job that pays a lot but it's a job if you love books it's definitely rewarding in a lot of ways you've been listening to bookseller topher lundell in a minute he takes us through the store and talks to us about some of its rarer treasures Today's episode is brought to you by Carbonite. Without automatic cloud backup, everything on your computer is at risk from hackers, viruses, disasters, or even human error. Few things are as bad for business as downtime, so why take the risk? Get Carbonite cloud backup and protect the files that keep your business running smoothly. Start your free trial at Carbonite.com, no credit card required. Use offer code WORKING. And get two free bonus months if you decide to buy. That's Carbonite.com, offer code WORKING. This episode of Working is also brought to you by Slack, the messaging and file sharing platform for Teams. Its customers include NASA, AOL, and MIT, along with a lot of other places that you probably know by their initials, and even more that you don't, including Slate. I use it to work out stories with my editors, to joke with my colleagues, and perhaps most importantly, to share hilarious animated GIFs of cute animals doing cute things. Visit slack.com slash slate. Create a new team, and you'll get $100 in credit for when you decide to upgrade to a paid plan. Should we take a look around the bookstore a little? Sounds great to me. So we're standing here in front of... So this is one of our rare bookcases. This uh, houses a lot of uh, history books. Um, also, it houses our Dickens collection. And so what I'm pulling down now is a first edition of uh, Edwin Drood. And this is interesting because not only is it a first edition, but it's also still housing the original pamphlets, the serial editions of the book. So something like this is extremely rare. You can see that a couple of copies are a little bit torn, but considering the age, it is still pretty immaculate. It looks like there are ads on the back of these little pamphlets. Exactly. So, you know, uh, Dickens would publish these. Uh, they'd come out every month, which is one of the reasons that a lot of his books, you'll get to the end of a chapter and it'll be a complete cliffhanger. Where So, and on the back, there'd be ads. This is an ad for portrait albums, croquet set, and writing papers, which... Uh, I guess every English gentleman needed. Are you involved with pricing an object like this one? I am, yes. So something like this, I would price along with the owner of the store. Um, anything that th that's this expensive, I obviously have to run by him. But again, this is something where you would do a, a good deal of online research. You want to make sure that you have all of the pieces, that all of the points are hit, which means that a first edition will often have a spelling mistake or 
a caption that's been written differently in later editions. So you have to do enough research to find out, does this book hit all of those points? Where do you do that kind of research? There's a lot of it is available now online, but a lot of it is still in books. And the pricing also you get a sense of from quality or? You try to match the quality to books of similar quality that you've found online. And then along with that is you're trying to match to the right sort of vendors. So how do you protect these books like this? What What's the actual care process? First of all, you want to handle the book as little as possible. Um, we always recommend that if people are bringing a book home that's expensive, that they keep it in a dry place. Um, the worst thing for books is any sort of dampness. And that can spread from one book to another, and it can really hurt your entire collection. Do you then maintain a dehumidification system in the store here? We don't have a museum quality climate control, but we do check our climate here all the time. How much do books like this go for? Um, it, it's, it varies. Uh, the Druid I showed you was uh, $12.50, which is a good price for that. Uh, a copy of the Pickwick Papers here, which is... I'm going to say $2,000. Is that written in the book itself? Yes. We uh, pencil our prices on the first page on the upper right-hand side, which is fairly common for used and rare books. So there are one, two, three, four, five shelves, about two feet wide each uh, here in this case. How much do you think a case like this is worth? Ooh, it could be anywhere from $100,000 to $150,000 probably. Um, this one especially has some of our more rare and antique books. Um, antiquarian things. Um, there's a collection of Milton's poems in one of these. Uh, Virgil from, it looks like 1650. Uh, some of these have been rebound, but a lot of these are in their original vellum bindings as well, which are these white bindings you see there. When you're buying an item like this, are you doing the research already about how much you're going to charge for it eventually? It, yes, exactly. Something like this, it's not something that we buy off the street and price right away. It's something that's going to take a little bit more time. And so we usually hold on to it for a while, um, do some research. Sometimes we've in the past contacted other booksellers that might have experience in a certain area that we don't, and they'll give us their thoughts. But a lot of it is by, you know, just experience. Uh, like I said, the owner of this store has been doing this for, you know, 50 some years. So after a while, I think it's more of a feel thing for him. Whereas for me, I like to do as much research as I can. Can we look at some of the, is, are there any other cases that are? Oh, definitely. There's, there, there are many. Let's see what we got here. So this case, we house a lot of our uh, modern first editions. And this case includes a lot of mystery as well as some science fiction. Uh, some horror in there too. Right? There's a little bit of horror in there. We have, for example, we have this first edition of Stephen King's The Stand and... It's signed uh, by him for uh, Christmas. Um, <laughs> and this is a fairly rare book. Uh, there's his signature there, 1978. Um, and as you can see, this are, what you're looking at here on the edge of the book, these, this brown spotting that you'll find on a lot of uh, older books, this is called foxing. You see it on prints, uh, anything that has paper. Um, there's some a little bit of controversy as to what causes it. They know that it is... Uh, indirectly caused by water and dampness, but some people think it's a mold, some people think it's just staining, but uh, it's pretty much uh, universally found on books that are 
of a certain age. If I saw right, despite that foxing, you're charging 750 for that? 750 for the stand. Um, a book like this, a first edition of one of Stephen King's, I think it's his, it looks like it's his fifth book. His first book, Carrie, was a huge seller. If you can find a first edition of that, that's going to be, I would imagine, somewhere in the 5,000 range, just because they didn't publish that many of the first printing. Um, so when we say that this book is a first edition, we are also saying that it's a first printing of that edition. Um, it's sort of the shorthand. Uh, if, if it was a later printing, I'd say that this is the second printing of the book. Something I've always wondered, why are first editions so valuable to people? It's hard to say. I, a lot of it has to do with scarcity. Um, for example, we're just talking about Stephen King. Um, it, the first uh, printing of his book, Carrie, probably had a very small print run. And now that he has become so famous, his print runs are like probably 25,000 copies at least, um, that it's just the scarcity of having a book like that. Um, there's no, there's nothing secret inside the book that you're going to find, but uh, it's another, just a collector's item. It's about that connection with the past. Exactly. Yes. What else in this case stands out to you? Um, I really like this Ray Bradbury, Dark Carnival. I've never read that Bradbury. Oh yeah, it's great. This is uh, $700, again, a first printing, first edition, and this was published by Arkham House, which did a lot of reissues of H.P. Lovecraft books, um, and they were a fairly small publisher. So this was Bradbury's first short story collection. Do you think uh, that when people buy books like these, they actually plan to read them? For the most part, I would imagine not. There are people who like to get first editions and read them put them on their shelves. Then there are people who have collections or obsessions. Somebody came in the other day and was asking how they should start collecting books in first editions. And to me, you would have to start with something that you really are interested in. Um, otherwise, it's just like buying a stock. And I don't really see the point of doing that with a book. Science fiction is a very popular collection to have just because I think a lot of people have a connection to their childhood, that these were the books that they read. And to sort of put a monetary price on something that they have, an emotional price, feels right to them. You have uh, one of my favorite books of my teenage years, Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said by Philip K. Dick. Oh, yeah. How much would you charge me for that, mm, that I assume, first edition? Well, let's open it up. Oh, there it is. This one is three twenty-five. I don't think my um, childhood's worth that much. <laughs> this one has a bit of a remainder spray which means that the book was selling in hardcover. It didn't sell. They sent it back to the publisher. They spray it to mark that it was returned to them, and then it probably this book probably sold for a dollar, <laughs> and now it's $325. So uh, to some extent, what we really see here is not just the history of an author or the history of, uh, of a particular book, but the whole kind of fact of the publishing industry. Yes, uh, you can definitely see a lot of... Books published in the same era will have a lot of the same fonts. A lot of they'll, they'll copy each other, um, especially if a book sells really well. You'll see a lot of books that use almost the same image and the same font. Uh, so that is something interesting to look out for. So this is our fiction section. This is probably the section of the store that I'm most familiar with. I definitely came to the bookstore and my love of books through fiction. So this section is just alphabetical by last name, and it's a sort of general fiction section. Do you have any kind of 
guiding rules for when something gets pulled out and ends up on a sci-fi shelf or some other kind of genre classification or other kinds of specificity? Typically, that's um, up to the shelver. Um, there are some authors that sort of stride between science fiction and fiction. Somebody like uh, Kurt Vonnegut, I tend to put in fiction, and that's sort of a snobbish thing to do because he is a science fiction writer, but people tend to look for him more in Vonnegut. So you sort of try to get your your head in the customer's head and say, where would this person be looking for this book? Stephen King's written some books that aren't horror books, but I would always put all of his books together in that section just even, because that's where people are going to look for him. So even if they're, they want to read The Dark Tower or some fantasy or something. Like exactly, that, exactly. And this is all paperback. Is there a reason that the hardback stuff is separated out into different shelving? It's mostly a matter of space for us and our shelving system. We t have found that if the book is not published in the last year, or if it's not a classic by Faulkner or Hemingway, uh, somebody like that, that we don't sell it in hardcover. It'll just sit on our shelf forever. People like to come into a used bookstore, get their paperback, and walk out. For some reason, that the hardcovers, unless it is a first edition or something rare, it just does not sell off our shelves. You hear people talk sometimes about used book smell. Is that yes. something that, that you have experienced? I, every day I experience it. Uh, I think I'm pretty much immune to it at this point. Um, it's just the smell of my job. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to us, Jeff. Thanks a lot. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Our email address is working at slate.com. And you can listen to all six seasons at slate.com slash working. This episode was produced by the astonishing Mickey Kepper. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai, and the chief content officer of the Panoply Network is Andy Bowers. In a Slate Plus Extra, Topher Lundell tells us about some of the gloriously weird pulp science fiction novels that his store gathers. For that and more great extras, visit slate.com slash working plus to get a free two-week trial. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.